Gracious God, we thank you for this day, and we ask your blessing upon us as we study the 10th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. We pray that we would learn something new about ourselves and about you this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start with verse one. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness or covenantal membership for everyone who believes. Moses writes concerning this righteousness that comes from the law that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, we'll go ahead and break there. And um, one thing I just want to name as we are in this section, Romans 9 through 11, where Paul is um, really wrestling with what does it mean, as John says, that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not, that the Jewish Messiah has come. And yet, for the most part, most Jews not only do not believe, um, but uh, the chief priest, right, would hand him over to Pilate as a blasphemer. And uh, I think it would be irresponsible of me not just to name um, that at the moment in Austin, Texas, there's been um, many anti-Semitic acts uh, recently, I think, that a fire was set outside a synagogue. And of course, we have the whole legacy of the Holocaust and all of that. So it's just important to, to name that and, and to be aware of that, but also to say that Paul, right, um, was not aware of those things, and Paul was writing uh, in a different world, and that part of our responsibility is to enter Paul's world and to see this from his perspective, um, all the while being sensitive to some of the modern dynamics at play. So whenever Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for them, he is still speaking of the people of Israel. He wants the Israelites to be saved. Um, last week, he said that he has unceasing anguish in his heart uh, because they're not um, believing. They, they are not part of the church, the baptized, or at least many of them are not. Um, he says in verse two that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. And, um, you know, here we could think of the example of Phineas in Numbers 25, who, you know, kills an Israelite to stop the plague. Um, Paul might have suggested that it was an unenlightened zeal for God that eventually would have led him to stone Stephen to death or even to hand Jesus over to the authorities. And one of the things that we can just ponder 
is the question of how many of the world's problems actually stem from unenlightened zeal, right? Going back to the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or the many atrocities committed in the name of God, uh, there is a zeal, uh, a real passion. But if that passion is not enlightened, it leads to some uh, some troubles. And 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 for Paul, that like that that lack of enlightenment um, uh, stems, at least contextually in this letter, from how the righteousness of God is attained. Now, remember when Paul uses this word righteousness, he's not speaking of a moral quality or virtue, but the best translation is really covenantal membership. And Paul's claim here is that covenantal membership happens not when we keep the law, but rather when we believe, uh, when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And of course, for Paul, this is all tied to baptism. Baptism is the sacrament or the sign that this is so. Um, and, and in a sense, when Paul says that they, you know, speaking of the Jews, that they tried to establish their own righteousness, Paul's point is that um, what the Jews tried to, to own was their own covenantal status in the same way that you own your house, right, as private property, that they wanted to guard their status as covenantal insiders, that they wanted to protect that from the outsiders as if membership in God's covenant were its own private club. And here Paul is actually railing against this exclusionary principle. Uh, to give you a modern equivalent, it's always easier to pick on people other than ourselves, so I'm going to do that. I want you to think of uh, an evangelical megachurch, right, that would actually say, we alone are the remnant. We alone belong to the people of God. And if you believe X, and if you behave according to Y laws, and if you sign on our dotted line and, and have our politics and have our rule of life, and you confess the things that we believe um, you need to believe in order to be saved, you're in. But if you don't do those things, you're out. Um, and, and I think this is what it means, practically speaking, to try and establish one's own covenantal membership. Whereas Paul's point is that through grace and baptism, we receive our membership in God's covenant as a gift. And so just a reminder, righteousness here means membership in the covenant. Um, you are righteous because you are a member of the covenant. That's what baptism is. You've been grafted into the covenant, but not through your own works, not through your own cleverness, but rather through the grace of God. Um, when Paul says Moses writes concerning the righteousness from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, the word is near you on your lips and in your heart. Uh, here, what Paul is quoting is first Leviticus 18.5, which says, you shall keep my statutes and ordinances by doing so shall one live. But then later he quotes Deuteronomy 30. And I think Paul's point here, because Deuteronomy comes after Leviticus, is that the Torah is somewhat of a buildup, but that you actually have at the end of Torah, at the end of Deuteronomy, you have the revelation of covenantal membership by faith. 
uh, by grace even. And so Paul's argument here, we'll see if you buy it, is that actually everything he's saying is already present in Deuteronomy, um, that Paul is referencing here something that was already at the heart of the Jewish tradition and saying it was all there, it, it was already there all along. Um, but, but where he kind of reappropriates it or reinterprets it, that verse that says the word is near you on your lips and in your heart, that's a direct quote from the book of Deuteronomy. But then Paul's interpretation is that if you believe with your heart, you're justified. If you confess with your mouth, you're saved. And then he quotes other pieces of scripture that say no one who believes in him will be put to shame. And so here Paul is really rehashing some of his old arguments. Um, as he says in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a quote from Joel 2.32. Um, and again, if one reads the book of Joel, Joel 2.32 is a covenant fulfillment passage. It is a passage tied to this vision of God pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. And so if you were to interview Paul and say, hey, man, you're doing some theological innovation here, Paul would say, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm quoting the book of Joel. I'm, I'm quoting the book of Deuteronomy. That what I'm, I'm, I'm taking great pains to show you is that all along, membership in the covenant has been based on grace and something God intended for all. And whenever he critiques the people of Israel saying they tried to establish their own righteousness, he really means they tried to have the covenant for themselves uh, when their original vocation was to share that with the world. W one little note about Paul's use of the word Lord in Romans. So here where he quotes Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, and he often refers to Jesus as Lord. Uh, in the Septuagint, the, um, the Greek word is kyrios, which is the word that Paul uses in Romans. Um, but in the Hebrew, right, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. In, in Hebrew, the word would have been Adonai, and Adonai was the most common reverent substitute for the tetragrammaton, uh, which is Y-H-W-H. Now, if you put an A and an E in there, that's how you get the word Yahweh. But we actually don't know how that was pronounced uh, because the Hebrew alphabet doesn't have vowels. And also because um, the name of God was holy and you weren't allowed to say it. And so people would have substitutes. And instead of saying Yahweh, uh, they'd say Adonai. And many Jews wouldn't even say Adonai. But uh, my point here is that if you kind of go to the roots of the Greek word kyrios, it's tied to Adonai, which is tied to the name of God. And if we compare that to Romans 9, 5, uh, where the language seems to link the Messiah with God over all, I, I, I think a, a case can be made that whenever Paul uses the word Lord in reference to the Christ or to Jesus, that there is a divine connection there, that Paul is very intentionally aware um, that, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is more than human. So I'm going to go ahead and just pause there and we'll dive into some conversation. All right.
But how are they to call on the one in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in one of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All right. Well, I mean, this is just kind of the cleanup of, of chapter 10. And here, this is really a call to evangelism. And, and we remember how Paul begins this letter in Romans 1.1. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Um, the, the Greek word apostle, apostolos, means one who is sent. And Paul identifies as such. He has been sent. He's been given a commission to go preach this word to Jew and Gentile alike. And now he is urging the Romans on to go out there and to proclaim the message as well. Um, and, and this is important, you know, because, for, again, for Paul, the conundrum is, why don't people believe? Uh, and before he can get into a more hopeful uh, vision of the future in Romans 11, he has to start with, well, uh, if people are going to believe, you know, that's only going to happen if they first hear some kind of message and um, the unbelieving world will only hear a message unless people are actually sent. And, you know, so one of the things I think we can reflect on is what does that look like today? Because when Paul was writing this, there are no commercials, there's no internet, there's no social media. You know, we live in a world where we're overburdened with information. Everyone's trying to get a piece of our attention and tell us what to think and who to believe in. And um, that kind of changes the dance of what evangelism is. And it changes um, the spirit in which we live out our apostleship. But for Paul, it was very simple. Like, we got to get this message out there. Um, maybe many people don't actually know and haven't actually heard um, that uh, the Messiah has come. And then kind of towards the end of this chapter, I think, Paul, this is where he gets a little less clear. He's referencing Isaiah and some other scriptures. But one thing I want to note is this, this image of making Israel jealous, uh, where he quotes, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. This is one of Paul's more funny metaphors, I think, that he plays with in this epistle. And it's certainly not one that we should take too literally. Um, but I think the metaphor here is that in the same way that Israel made God jealous with their worship of idols, so too God has now made Israel jealous by welcoming in the Gentiles. And that maybe, you know, if they're jealous enough, um, they'll then come to their senses, believe, and, and join the party. Um, now, again, that's not a metaphor to take literally, but 
I think Paul is here playing with the Hebrew scriptures in order to make sense of the current state of affairs. Um, and then below here, uh, I'm not going to read all of this. I do have the passages from Deuteronomy 30 that Paul was referencing earlier, but I just kind of highlight this emphasis on the heart. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. And then later on, know the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. And as we think about Paul's intent here to remind the people that God is faithful to the covenant, Paul is basically making the claim, it's always been about the heart. It's never been primarily about the outward code of the law, that even the law was given in order to do something to the human heart. And um, so I think a big, a big piece of Paul's argument uh, is that um, this is that, that the renewal of the covenant is a renewal on the emphasis of what is happening in the human heart.